welcome to the Words Matter podcast, enhancing patient care through better communication. Welcome to another episode of the Words Matter podcast. I'm Oliver Thompson. So we continue the clinical reasoning series and I hope you've enjoyed the previous two episodes with Roger Carey and Mark Jones where we covered how we can think about our practice, evidence and our patients. However, given that the series is exploring clinicians' reasoning around people with disease, it would seem prudent to consider what disease is, both as a concept and phenomena, but also the ethical and moral functions which are tied to it and emanate from it, and which motivate us to begin to reason about it. As such, I'm speaking again to Professor Björn Hoffman. I spoke with Björn in November last year on episode 55 about de-diagnosing with his co-author, Dr. Marianne Lee. And so today we speak about his work on bioethics and talk around and about a recent paper of his titled Acknowledging and Addressing the many ethical aspects of disease. And that was published in the journal Patient Education and Counselling, and I've linked the paper in the show notes. And this is a two-part episode where the second part of the conversation focuses on Björn's work on overdiagnosis, and it follows nicely from this episode. And to remind you, Björn is a scholar in philosophy of medicine and bioethics, with a particular interest in the relationship between epistemology and ethics. He's affiliated with the Department of Health Sciences at the Norwegian University of Science and Technology and the Centre for Medical Ethics at the University of Oslo. His main fields of interest are basic concepts of health, disease, causality, overdiagnosis, medicalization, and severity. So in this episode we speak about what we mean when we use the word disease We talk about disease as both a concept and phenomena and how the concept of disease provides us with knowledge and guides our actions. We talk about disease from a biological perspective, the experience of disease which we term illness and the societal perspective on disease which we call sickness. And we talk about how these perspectives interact and at times may be in conflict with each other. We consider disease as an experienced phenomena with a scientific description and moral imperative. And we discuss the moral functions of disease and why they're of great importance to our patients and to us as health professionals. And finally, we touch on how the science and the ethics of disease relate. So I bring you Professor Björn Hoffman. Björn, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. So this conversation was really bred from our chat with you and Marianne about de-diagnosing back in November last year, where you both gave a fantastic outline slash accompaniment to your wonderful paper on de-diagnosing. So it's great to explore some of those topics a bit more deeply with you today. Yeah, fantastic opportunity. So really great to, to be with you again. So maybe if you could... 
and uh, we'll I'll frequently kind of cross-reference our previous chat, but just begin by introducing yourself and your kind of current academic position and the sorts of things that you're thinking about and are keeping you awake at night. Don't mention COVID. <laughs> I won't. No, um, my name is uh, Bjorn Hoffman. Uh, I'm a professor at the Norwegian University for Science and Technology at Jøvik, but also at the University of, uh, of Oslo at the Faculty of Medicine Center for Medical Ethics there. Uh, so I've been working on issues uh, in the connection between epistemology and ethics for many years. That's really the core of my many uh, studies, uh, which cover quite a lot of ground, but, but that's really the core trying to find out how knowledge forms and also how our moral norms and values are connected to the formation, production and use of, of knowledge in healthcare. So that's in a way the core of, of much of my research, but also of my, my teaching. My background is um, in, in natural sciences and engineering, in the history of ideas, but also in, in philosophy and, and ethics. So we're going to try and split our conversation up into a couple of parts and, and base it around, well, two, at least for me, two main papers that you've written, but to, to, I'll also signpost to, to listeners the pretty broad contribution to the literature you've made around overdiagnosis and ethics of disease and just even getting a, a handle on what disease is from a, a range of perspectives. But as you know, this is, our conversation is belonging to a a set of episodes around clinical reasoning. And I suppose while we're not going to necessarily tackle the cognitive process of, of reasoning and thinking about disease, it would seem prudent to to consider what disease is as both a concept and a phenomenon and the ethical and moral functions which emanate from those from those ideas. So so maybe if we start by, you know, when we say disease what are we meaning when we say disease? That's a great, great question because uh, uh, the word disease is a very, very broadly used word. It's used for a lot of different phenomena which we encounter daily. And both uh, as private persons, as patients, we may use the word disease in many ways and so do professionals, but also health authorities. So this makes it sometimes a little bit confusing. I think uh, health professionals uh, tend to think very much about function, uh, reduced function of some kind related to organs or to mental functioning. And then they also tend to think of some type of specific site, it may be, or entity, it may be a mental reduction of function. Uh, it may also be uh, an organ, a cell, a gene that has some kind of uh, altered function. Uh, so that's the, in a way, the functional part of disease, which I think most of the time professionals and patients share. And then you have the experiential side of disease, which relates to, okay, what do I feel as a, what do I experience as a person? As most of us are diseased during our lives, we, we feel that, okay, it's related to some kind of pain, 
some kind of suffering in one way it can be physical, but of course also mental and otherwise. So then you have one, in a way, professional biomedical component in the ordinary sense at least, and that is the, the dysfunction. And then you have the experienced perspective, which is then the, the harm, the suffering. And then also we as persons in a society, we have a societal way of, of looking at and using the word disease, and that's in a way the sickness and the, the sick role. But the word is used, as I indicated, in so many ways as a concept. The concept has a specific meaning, so then it's what do we mean when we use the word disease? And uh, this meaning is then in a way related to mainly these three parts, but there are so many definitions of it. But it's the meaning is very often related to dysfunction in some way, harm, suffering in another way, but also in, in a changed social role. So these three perspectives seem to be quite predominant in the population, both for lay people, but also for, for professionals. And then, yeah, please go ahead. Yeah, just at that point, I should have done at the beginning, but just to, to anchor your kind of description of the, the different facets of disease or the different kind of guises in which it takes to your paper, which we're going to, is going to shape our conversation, which was published in just last year, I think, in Patient Education and Counselling, titled Acknowledging and Addressing the Many Ethical Aspects of Disease. And there's a lovely section at the very beginning of the paper where you, where you really outline the different perspectives that disease can be viewed from, whether it's the social or the biomedical label or the phenomenological illness, if you like. I, I suppose, I mean, I, I, I had a follow-up question, which is, and it, it comes back to why, why as clinicians we should be thinking about disease, or rather, you, you, know, you, you talk about disease having moral and ethical implications and, and motivations. So I suppose if, if disease wasn't viewed as illness, so if disease was merely a biomedical phenomena, when there are changes within bodily structures and tissues, but cause no illness, cause no first-person suffering, then we wouldn't really be mo be motivated to to reason around it. I mean, the fact that it it does cause suffering and you know can inhibits the flourishing of conscious creatures, if you like, then we th we begin to as clinicians we think about it, we take notice of it, and we we reason around it. Yes, uh, so. Disease. We use the word disease in, in many aspects and many ways, and uh, we have as language users we use the concept of disease, i.e., the, the meaning of disease, also in many ways. And sometimes there are differences between how professionals use it and understand it, how patients uh, both use and understand uh, disease, and as we as society understand. Uh, and use the word word disease. I, as a patient, may feel experience uh, disease. Uh, I I'm ill. I feel bad. I have pain. Uh, I may vomit. I all these types of symptoms. So that's my personal experience. And then you have the uh, the professional uh, perspective on on disease. And uh, here you have uh, a lot of. I mean. We have a lot of ways of uh, measuring and detecting diseases. And uh, well, the core of it for many professionals is some kind of reduced function. Uh, so there's some 
organs, some cells, some tissue, uh, which is a, a, a defect or a, a dysfunction of, of some kind, which is important for the health of, uh, of the person. And then you have the uh, societal perspective. Uh, if I'm a diseased, I'm not able to continue my work. Uh, I'm not able to be a moral person towards uh, my neighbors, my relatives, and so forth. So, so my social status is in a way changed. And the interesting thing, and also that's where the ethical issues come in, both for health professionals and for lay people and people who are diseased, that's uh, where these perspectives uh, mm. do not cohere, where they are not aligned. Because uh, today, uh, a lot of uh, people experience that they, they really feel ill. But when they come to the healthcare uh, and health professionals, they cannot find a specific disease. Uh, so then they go into a, a kind of limbo because uh, from a societal perspective, uh, perspective we, we use uh, the health professionals to, to warrant whether there is a disease and whether we then can, in a way, act towards that disease and also whether people uh, can have money, sick money, uh, have a sick leave and, and so forth. So these um, three perspectives and illness for the personal, disease for the professionals, and uh, sickness uh, for the societal perspective, uh, many times and hopefully uh, most of the times uh, they align. But the problems both for us as lay people uh, and patients, for the professionals and also for society is when they do not. For instance, the cases where people really feel ill, the professional cannot find anything and society doesn't know what to do about it. Is it a failure of just the the professional just not having the tools to... Like one way of looking at it is there is something there on some sort of level, but the, the current tools that we have to detect these things just aren't able to, to you know, pick these things up. Or is it the case that they're so complex that no matter how sensitive our tools are, we'll never kind of really grasp the nature of this thing, which is making people feel a certain way. Yeah, if, if I uh, were a prophet, I would be able to answer the last uh, question. <laughs> because, uh, but I, I think uh, a lot of uh, professionals really hope that we will be able to, to find uh, also uh, causes for many of the unexplained symptoms and conditions that we encounter. And I think a lot of clinicians really worry about today. But uh, I think um, this is really uh, one source of poor communication or as ethical problems in communication between professionals and patients. Because when, for instance, a patient really has illness, there's no doubt about it. There's a lot of pain. The person definitely suffers, comes to the healthcare professional. The professional uses all the tools in the toolbox, but cannot identify a specific disease and tells the patient, I cannot identify a specific disease. This is sometimes experienced or heard as uh, you don't believe me. So there's a really challenge with regards to clear, good communication. And so, so just, just, just to be clear with terms, so when that professional says, I cannot find a specific disease, what they're saying is, I cannot identify parts of your body, cell, whatever tools they're using from microscopes to you know, moving someone's elbow about or MRI or whatever. I cannot find on a kind of macro level, it all looks fine, 
but yet you're feeling quite unwell. So just, so just just to be clear, when they say I cannot find disease, what what they mean is I cannot find any bits of your body which seem to be dysfunctional, which would explain your symptoms. Yes, exactly. Or explain your illness experience. Exactly. And even more, they say that my my toolbox is incomplete or insufficient. At least I think uh, a lot of the clinicians I know they're they're very honest and and, uh, and humble about it. So they really want to convey at least that well, the measures that we have today, the toolbox is is not uh, well enough equipped. And of course, some of them think that if we do develop more in a biomedical direction, we will eventually be able to to explain and also handle the illness that you feel. While other things that maybe the biomedical approach is not mm. enough, we need to expand our toolbox towards other other measures as well. Are, are there times when the toolbox is sufficient, it's, it's properly equipped, but yet there still isn't? I mean, there are times when despite people proclaiming to feel ill, it's possible there is no disease. So the example we just went through is that there may be some occult disease which cannot be detected by tools but the other possibility is that there just isn't any disease going on no, no matter what tools you have yes but yet people are still experiencing a sense of illness so what's going on there well of course you may have a lot of types of pain and suffering uh, which are uh, not necessarily related uh, to your body or or mental function as such. Uh, it can be a, a social issue, for instance. When I uh, read a, uh, um, a theoretical book or a thesis or a dissertation, which I, I really don't understand, I really would like to know what's going on there. And it's so difficult. I, it's, it's beyond me. Okay, I'm suffering, but I've got... I'm, this suffering doesn't necessarily belong to the healthcare system. So there may, of course, be a wide range of sufferings uh, which are affecting my health and making me uh, worry and making me suffer in, in some way, but where the healthcare system may not help me. Maybe the educational system may be more or better equipped to, to help me. So I think it's important to... to um, point out that not all types of suffering are related to illness yeah. as a health-related uh, issue. Of course, it's very hard to delineate what belongs to health and not. But I think one very pragmatic way of doing so is to, to look at, okay, where, uh, which institution, which organization, which network, which persons would be best equipped to, to help me with this. And of course, because the healthcare professionals have had such, such tremendous success so far, we, we tend to go to and ask health professionals, can't you also handle this problem? One example of that will be like homelessness, for instance. On Hawaii, it has been suggested to make homelessness a disease because uh, making it a disease, you have a system which takes care of it. But of course, you could say that, well, homelessness, uh, well, it it doesn't further the health of the individuals who are homeless, but maybe the healthcare system is not the very best system to take care of homelessness. And so this leads us on nicely to, to the the traditional conception of disease is pretty much as we outlined that it's a biological phenomenon. And that's that seems to me where the, em the emphasis is and people wouldn't automatically 
presume that homelessness is, 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 is a disease, but I suppose as a as a scientific descriptor of pathology of, of dysfunction in the body, are there moral implications of of that conception of disease, or do the moral implications arrive from illness? I mean, what's what's motivating people, clinicians, to 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 reason around disease and to to take action? Well, that's relating very much to the epistemic uh, aspect of disease because, uh, I mean, our eagerness to classify diseases, to identify them, detect them, define them and so forth, is especially because we think that by doing so, we're able to, to help people. And that is, uh, in a way, the action guiding function of disease. So if you have identified a disease, detected a disease in a specific person, uh, then you can follow textbooks and guidelines of how to treat it. So the aspiration of, in a way, identifying, defining and handling diseases as a biomedical uh, phenomenon is very much because we think that and very often we can help people because the disease in that sense is professionally action guided. So that's, a, in a way, a, a moral guide to what to do. And that's also because uh, why a lot of uh, persons, ill persons, really want to have a diagnosis. Because, okay, then I firstly know what it is. So that's the epistemic point. And then also health professionals will know how to help me. So that's the, the practical point of it. So that's why, and of course, we in our culture have a tremendous belief in, in, in natural sciences and, and what it can do. So that's, uh, I think we have, a, uh, in a way, uh, a tendency to, to, to look that way and also trust uh, biomedical explanations and biomedical interventions. Maybe, as I argue uh, many times in my writings, beyond what is warranted. But I, I do not deny that we have been very successful in, in handling various types of illnesses uh, by, by medical means. And you talk about in the paper, as we laid out, these three, these three perspectives of disease and what happens, or maybe say a bit more about how they might interact and potentially come into conflict. And so we gave the example of um, someone feeling unwell, feeling ill, but yet there is no observable biological disruption to the bits of their body, but perhaps develop that further. Yes. So we mentioned a challenge when, when people have illness uh, and they are ill, but the professionals cannot identify a specific disease and, and society doesn't know whether you should have a sick role or not. But also in the cases where, where professionals can identify a disease, but where the person doesn't feel anything, goes to work like normally. And of course, society thinks that well, we can't attribute any sick role to this person. Uh, is the person then, does the person then have a disease? And how should we handle that case? That also uh, gives us uh, quite some challenges morally with regards to what, what should we do. And of course, uh, the example can be a lot of genetic markers of various kinds uh, and some of them are more or less uncertain but some may be very certain like for instance if you find a, a reputation uh, on the hunting gene for instance more than 40 reputations uh, gives you quite a good clue what will happen with, with a person at a certain age at least but it's not uh, fully certain though so but anyway you can find a lot of 
markers indicating that persons have a disease, but they don't feel anything, what should you then do? I think these challenges will be even more accentuated now as we have uh, artificial intelligence, big data, machine learning, where we really can get a lot of red flags popping out and, and what should we do then? So that's also uh, a challenge, i.e. that we have disease but not illness or sickness. And also the cases where you have sickness but no illness or disease uh, are challenging. And, and of course, that comes up when, when society thinks that, oh, this person doesn't function well. So why doesn't the person function? Well, it should be because the person is a is diseased. And then you label people with diseases. And of course, you have examples like uh, dissidents in the old Soviet. They were they had to go to psychiatric wards. And, and also, uh, uh, like in many countries, uh, homosexuality was a, a disease uh, for, for a long time. Uh, although there was uh, not necessarily an illness. Uh, and uh, it was uh, very hard to find any disease from a biomedical perspective as well. So these three perspectives, uh, dimensions, I sometimes call them on, on human malady, when they cohere and uh, they all point to the same conclusion, that's fine. But the challenge that we have, and I think both as society, as private persons, as patients, potential patients, and as professionals, is when they do not cohere. So a person feels ill, is ill, there is no disease and sick, no sickness, or professionals find disease, but the person is not ill or uh, sick. Or as lastly I mentioned, there is sickness, but the person doesn't feel ill, or uh, the professionals can't find any disease. And then we come to your very good question. Well, which of these perspectives is the most important one, right? So, of course, we think that, oh, it's biomedical perspectives uh, on disease that trump this. But my argument has been that, well, medicine and healthcare is in many ways a moral endeavor. Uh, so, we want to help people. Uh, and uh, we can do this best by respecting the way themselves, uh, the, the persons themselves experience to be helped. And my argument would be that, well, uh, we do that best by relieving suffering in some way or other. So in a way, I argue that that uh, illness is the major or the most important, the primary perspective in this, not saying that all types of ills should be handled by the healthcare system, as I indicated. But I, when, when it really, when it comes, when in doubt, uh, look at illness. That's my my argument. I also try in another argue, uh, article to to explain why there is an asymmetry between these uh, three and why why illness uh, is uh, is the most important. But here, uh, the main argument is that the moral, in a way, appeal. Some would say the moral imperative of disease is related to illness. It's not related to dysfunction, to disease, or to the social role. But that makes it a challenge for clinicians when, when interacting, trying to help patients, as you mentioned earlier, that built into these diagnostic labels, this categorization of disease, implicitly is is action, is treatment. That if you can classify diseases diagnosis X, then what's imbibed in that classification, that diagnosis is a course of treatment or management. 
if we're saying that it's the illness perspective which wins out and is the is the kind of moral driver for clinicians, well, there isn't. It becomes more complicated. There isn't necessary assumed action or treat, you know how there isn't. If you can look at some cells under a microscope and it shows a certain you know, characteristic, you can prescribe a certain drug, for example. We don't have the same. I don't want to use the word precision, but clarity, perhaps, maybe with with illness. How do we know how to treat people who are ill? There is it's not necessarily built into that. Excellent question, I think, and also to just underscore your your point, we don't have classifications for illnesses. I mean, in psychiatry, you talk about illnesses in the same yeah. way as diseases, but illness as uh, as first person experience, uh, we don't classify them. I also, we, we don't have specific treatments following from these classifications. So it's much harder. In a way, that's um, only half of the story. We do classify symptoms, for instance. So, so we have some types of classifications also of illnesses. I mean, just to, I suppose just to, just as it's wrong to mind, is that you know, with back pain, for example, back pain is the diagnosis. I mean, it's, there is often no clear biological disruption to tissues which fully explains someone's experience of back pain so we just call it back pain um, and so I suppose in a way we have classified an experience then it's the experience of pain in the back is the diagnosis yeah so uh, and of course uh, we have a lot of symptom-based diagnosis as well so it's not like we don't classify illness at all but uh, I think it's um, the reason that we are more developed, both classificatory and action-wise in the realm of disease and in illness is because the perspectives we use in the realm of disease are more specifically organ function-oriented uh, than, than in illness. But I think following your line of, of uh, questions, you could say that why well, shouldn't we be as well-developed in the realm of illness as we are in the realm of disease? And I would think that, uh, well, definitely we should uh, we should develop as much in illness and, as in disease. And a um, colleague uh, at the University of Oslo, he has launched uh, as a counter to high-tech, we should also have high-touch. So, uh, so we should try to advance as much in the realm of illness as we do in the realm of disease. But uh, as we may come back to later, uh, there's much more prestige related <laughs> to disease than to illness. You know, thinking about the epistemology of disease, you can imagine just libraries full of textbooks with photographs of skin rashes and, you know, microbes and various cellular ac you know, activity thinking about a library of illness and what does that what does that knowledge look like there isn't uh, you know i can imagine there is a range of forms from metaphors to stories to but it, it would look quite different if we were going to be equally developed in illness as we are in disease what would that section of the library look like what kind of books would be there for example yes and then also there's a more profound philosophical question lurking behind what we're talking about now, and that is, uh, are we at all able to experience the suffering of other persons? Uh, how can we access the way they experience disease? Mm -hmm. And of course, phenomenologists 
argue that we can perfectly fine do that. Philosophers of language would say that, well, we have access to other person's pain through the way we learn and use language. And neuroscientists will say, well, we, we could also have access to people's experience by by neuroscientific investigation. So it's it's not impossible, or there are many ways to try to say that, to, to figure out how to, to study illness. But this just to point out that there's a basic philosophical question with regards to can we actually experience how other people feel, experience, and suffer pain? Yeah, I'm just going gonna, gonna to labour the point. I'm just imagining a dermatologist looking at a patient's rash in their arm, looking at the book with the photo of the rash and saying, okay, yep, that's, that maps to that. Whereas I'm imagining with all the phenomenology of the world, you wouldn't have the same level of necessarily congruence or at least perceived congruence. You couldn't read a story about someone's illness experience, then sit with a patient and say, oh, yeah, that, that, I don't know. Am I making any kind of sense? Are they comparable at all? Well, uh, I, I think at least uh, I know some scholars who's, who would argue that you could actually map it in the, in the same way. But still, your question with regards to would it be uh, similarly action guiding is valid, I think. And uh, I think it's a good question. I think even there, some people would say, well, if we really developed the illness onology or <laughs> the classification and, and handling of, of illness. Is that a real word? Have you made that up? No, it just came to my mind now. <laughs> would uh, would then uh, be able not only to classify illnesses to to map it, as you say, but also to to make it more more action guiding. So I'm I'm uh, I'm open for 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 those solutions. But but your point is well taken. By now we don't. By now we don't have them. Hmm. And perhaps you want to sketch out in a bit more detail the kind of the moral implications of disease and. And, you know, I get confused with the ethical implications. I use them interchangeably. I know they're different, but maybe just to, to decipher what they are. Yes. I try in the article which you referred to, to differentiate between diseases' moral value, that is the moral value of disease, and the moral function of disease. And then I try to, thirdly, to connect uh, ethical issues to the three dimensions of disease we mentioned, the perspectives, disease, illness, and sickness. And lastly, then I try to, to look at some of the ethical issues related to the social value of disease. If I may say a little bit about each of them, with regards to the moral value, I mean, for most people, most of the time, disease is bad. It's dis-ease. And it incites a moral impetus, a moral imperative, to help these people. So that's one part of the, the moral value. I'm, I'm going to interrupt you, and I know you're, you're on a whole track, but I remember reading BAD, and I remember you having you used BAD a couple of times in, in, the, in the paper. Yes. And I just thought what you thought about that word, and when you used it, it it's such an everyday term. And do, do we need to think about what does BAD mean? And what does, is it assumed that it's just not ideal? Is, is, is disease ever good? Well, um, in times of vaccinations, <laughs> I promised not to go into that, but uh, you could say that, well, some kind of uh, reaction as strengthening the immune system could be, be good. But here specifically, I, I think that bad is uh, uh, 
meaning in, in terms of suffering. It's this ease, it's something painful. So it's it's uh, uh, the, um, uh, in a way, sentient experience uh, of, uh, mm. of something. So if... if it's certainly not flourishing, is no. it? I mean, if we're going to... And I think I'm using... Sam Harris talks about this in terms of kind of the moral landscape and things like that. And, and people kind of drill down, what do you mean by bad? Well, it's it's whatever flourishing isn't essentially or... You could say that, and and I would here be uh, more specifically towards suffering, that which is something which is is in some way painful, causing you to to suffer. So it's 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 a negative experience, uh, physically or yeah. mentally. And so only psychopaths enjoy suffering. I mean, you can certainly pay money to go to parts of London and suffer, yeah. uh, and you you're smiling as you're suffering. Well, that's uh, not what I ha- had in mind. Uh, whether you think that is sick or not, that's uh, <laughs> up to you. But that's not what what I'm I'm thinking about here. Yeah. So that's that's in a way the first moral value. That is that disease is bad in terms of suffering. It's this ease, and it incites a moral impetus or a moral imperative to to help people. So there's a moral drive in a way, a moral imperative to do something for people who have disease of some type. And then there, there's also a moral value in disease in another way, and that is something is made a disease because it's considered to be bad. So we want to and need to help people. So in order to do so, we make it or we define it as being a, uh, a disease. And I mean, a lot of new types of diseases emerge all the time. So that's just one example of that. So we, we want to help people and we to help if we make it uh, a disease. And of course, uh, ADHD may be used as an example if you want to do that. So that's the, the moral value aspect where a disease plays a, a role also in ethics. And then it's also interesting to see how many moral functions disease has. Because as we already mentioned several times, having identified a disease is action guiding. So it's professionals know what to do for specific diseases. So there's a, in a way, a practical implication. You know what, what to do. So the action guiding function of disease is very important where professionals know what to do for specific diseases. But also disease is very important for attributing rights. Patients have rights to attention and to healthcare. So that's important. And then there is a, uh, another function, which is freeing from duties. So if you have a disease, you are freed from the duty to work, you have a sick leave. But also, uh, importantly, uh, the moral function of uh, depriving people from rights is also uh, something that disease does. Because, um, for instance, specific diseases, you're not able to or allowed to have a driver's license and drive a car. Uh, and for some specific diseases, you may also not be allowed to, uh, to rear children, for instance. Uh, yeah, well, emigrate to Australia, for example. Yeah, for I've kind of got diseases. friends who have experience of that when the, the, the disease that they had or have inhibits them from obtaining a, a visa in the long term because you'll be a burden to, to the healthcare system is how... Certain countries perceive that, certainly Australia, possibly New Zealand, maybe the US. Um, so there's a, another example where d- the disease extracts a, a right or a privilege that others might have that don't have the disease. 
Excellent. And also, which is highly morally active or relevant, mm. I think. And the last point, which uh, psychiatrists are very good at dealing or, uh, or working with is attributing accountability. So that's also a moral function of disease. And then, uh, as we already have talked about, there are values related to the different perspectives of disease. And I've argued that I think that the, the illness perspective is morally most important, uh, has a higher weight because uh, of the moral impetus to help people. If you are, are to help people, uh, we help them best when they are suffering. So that's, uh, in a way, that part. And then also the last way that disease is ethically interesting and morally relevant is related to the social value of disease. Because uh, firstly, of all the different types of moral functions that we already have discussed, this makes it very interesting for stakeholders to, to expand, to direct the concept of disease because they can obtain some of these rights and also uh, freeing from, from duty. So that may be one reason. Uh, and one example here would be that, for instance, uh, persons with specific conditions, for instance, obesity, uh, have argued that they actually do not think at least one society for persons with obesity has argued that they actually do not think in principle that obesity is a disease, but in order to obtain uh, certain rights, they insist that it is a disease. So that's just one way, one example where where uh, uh, this play between what becomes a disease and not, where stakeholders are actors in this, can be, can be viewed. And then also it's interesting to notice from with regards to health professionals that diseases, they do have prestige and there is a prestige hierarchy and a social status of disease. This is, uh, may sound a little bit uh, strange to some, but uh, there are good studies in sociology of healthcare showing that uh, diseases which are organ-specific, which are... Uh, related to organs high up in the body and which are acute, where you can do something and where you can use advanced technology, they have a high prestige. Whereas uh, diseases or conditions where they are not organ-specific, they are lower in the body, uh, they may be diffuse, not specific, they may be chronic, they have a lower prestige. And of course, if this uh, prestige hierarchy uh, makes health professionals treat and handle different diseases differently, that's also a, a moral moral challenge. This is societal reaction. So if you've got, you know, thinking about, I suppose, long COVID or ME or chronic fatigue, which are diffuse, they're often biomedically quite hidden. We can't find a, a kind of clear substrate, you know, like causing these experiences versus you know a, a malignancy of the brain which is visual and is it kind of the, the the empathy the empathetic the empathic even reaction to society is a little bit different isn't it oh goodness i'm so sorry to hear about your brain tumor versus oh you're just a bit tired or lazy or you know there's some other stuff going on they're always a bit depressed those those sorts of reactions as well I th yes i think so and uh, this is also uh, illustrating what you uh, asked about earlier what's the relationship between disease illness and sickness and that's where in a way the disease 
influences the way we also look at illness and how illness uh, influences disease, how these status and also prestigious are, are changed and influenced. And of course, as a professional, any type of professional, but as a health professional in particular, to be able to do something is very important, to see, see the results of your work. So whenever you're able to cure a person, that's very good. So for those patients where we're not good at uh, acting, where we can't see very manifest results, we're in a way challenged. And we, I mean, you could say it's natural to try to flee those cases, but but those cases definitely do need attention and care um, <laughs> as much as any other uh, patients. But I think some of these mechanisms may produce these types of prestige hierarchies. From a moral perspective, it's interesting and uh, challenging if these prestige hierarchies influence how persons with these different conditions are treated and handled specifically in priority settings. So, uh, so I think that would bring us nicely on to, uh, in the paper, you've got some practical implications of how we could address the ethical implications of a disease. And I wonder, just kind of finishing up, tying it together, like I was saying before, many clinicians, including me, when someone mentions the word disease, we're really thinking about disruption to biology and biomedical structures having a much broader uh, view or, or kind of different perspectives on disease or, or an ethical perspective on disease, what does that give us as clinicians? What are the implications on our practice? I think, uh, as you also nicely alluded to earlier, with regards to the differences between the different perspectives on, on disease, I mean, uh, health professionals have a tendency to use the toolbox uh, and uh, many of the tools are very biomedically oriented and when finding uh, something there it's very good because it's helpful it's action guiding and hopefully the patient will will improve but not always and then to actually realize that this toolcase the biomedical toolcase may not be sufficient to address all the issues of illness and then to try to be clear that, well, the reason that I can't help you is not because I do not want, it's not because I do not acknowledge your illness, but it is because there are some significant limitations to my toolbox. And of course, this is a moral but also professionally a professional and epistemic uh, imperative to improve the toolbox and expand the toolbox. But I think to to try to see that, well, uh, the reason I really can't help this person who is suffering is because my toolbox is not well developed. And to acknowledge that, but also to try to expand the toolbox would be one way of doing it. One way of addressing the ethical issues we, we pointed out with regards to different perspectives. And then I think uh, another take-home message, if you would like to phrase it like that, is that we should acknowledge all the functions, the moral functions, giving rights, taking or relieving from duties and taking away rights. All these moral functions play a significant role. And these 
are drivers for how people behave in the disease landscape, how, for instance, patient uh, interest groups behave, how professional organizations behave. So it's, it's very important to see that, well, because disease has this moral, very important moral function, this can explain and help us also to understand a lot of the actions going on in healthcare and in health professionals. Uh, and then I think also it's important to notice, and uh, this has been challenged uh, lately with regards to those who define disease, they have a strong power. And this has been uh, acknowledged by a lot of stakeholders and actors, where whenever there's a change in like ICD, the National Classification of Disease, or DSM, uh, the Psychiatry Classification System of the American Psychiatric Association. Whenever there's a change you see uh, in the classification system, there's a lot of actors uh, and there's a lot of debate in the international uh, professional journals. Uh, and you can really see uh, that a lot of this is of moral relevance because it's, uh, it's about what we believe to be not the good life, but the bad life. Mm. So these are at least uh, some implications. And because disease has so clear moral implication, it is important that we try to define it as clear as we can. Uh, as we started out uh, with disease being quite diverse, uh, and we use the word in, in so many ways and so many connotations, uh, I think it's important that we as professionals and specifically for, for sub-specialties, try to define it as clear as possible, but also on a more overarching level to try to, to make the definition of disease as clear as we can. It's a, uh, many have argued that it's a vague concept that can't be very precise, but I, at least we should try to make it as precise as we can. And the reason is that it has so uh, vast moral implications. And that that defining or narrowing of disease, or at least the the what disease incorporates, brings us on nicely to probably the next part of the conversation around overdiagnosis and medicalization, where there's been an expansion of the the criteria, if you like, for disease. If you enjoyed this podcast, visit www.wordsmatter-education.com for all the show notes, resources and blogs and check out the online course in language and communication in relation to back pain and I'll see you next time.